Well, good morning. If I haven't met you already, my name is Michael Van Gorp, and I am the student pastor here at FBC Conroe, and I'm honored and humbled to be up here filling in for Pastor Jeff this morning, who's on his first official week of sabbatical. So uh, continue to pray for him. Uh, the good news is, is that if you don't like what I have to say today, over the next five weeks after me, you're going to hear from five well more qualified men than me uh, speaking to you. So just wait for all the awesome things you're going to get to hear over these next six weeks. Uh, as, as student pastor and uh, the resident millennial on staff, uh, don't judge, don't judge, you're already judging me, and, and someone who cares deeply about the future of the church, which I'm sure that you do as well, one of the, one of the most important questions that I think we can consider is, how do we reach the next generation? How do we reach the next generation? I'm, I'm proud to be an American. This is an amazing Sunday where we get to celebrate. We heard some amazing music about our country. And, and I'm sure if I asked you who's proud to be an American, you'd be like, yeah, hoo-hoo, yeehaw. And then you'd be like, and then if I asked the next question, are you concerned about the future of this country? You'd probably say yes as well for different reasons. But one of those reasons is probably about the next generation. What are, who are we handing the reins to? In Pew Research's most recent study, they found that only 64% of Americans today identify as Christian. 64% identify. Identify is just yeah, I'm a Christian. They don't have to prove it. They don't have to show that they really believe. They don't have to have any certain beliefs. They just have to say that they're a Christian. Only 64%. 50 years ago, that number was 90%. There's nothing indicating that this shift is going to slow down at all. So what religion are they joining? Are they, are they jumping to a different religion? No. The fastest growing religion in America is none or the religiously unaffiliated. So who are all these people that are leaving Christianity? Well, one of the researchers that worked on this project a couple of years ago, her name is Stephanie Kramer, she said the majority of people, like the, the highest percentage are people, the, the people who are raised Christian. If they later disaffiliated, they were more likely to be men and the younger people were leaving faster than the older. So that sets us up with a problem. And we see this in our churches. It's, it's not just in the culture. It's not just in these research studies. It, we, we see it also in churches as well. Across America, uh, 80 to 90% of evangelical churches are plateaued or declining, which means membership is staying the same or declining. And 80 to 90 percent. Uh, New Orleans Baptist Seminary did, did a study where they talked about, where they were looking at church health, and they said that 93 percent of Baptist churches were unhealthy. We talk about church planting. There's more churches closing their doors every year than are being planted every year. Well, that's the bad news. So here's the good news. The good news is this, is that 
We no longer have to worry about cultural Christianity. You know, cultural Christianity is this idea where everybody could just say that they're a Christian, but they don't really mean it. They don't really believe it, but they say it because they get something out of it in our society. But we know that that's not true because if you're here today, that means that you're most likely a follower of Jesus already or you're curious. You, you have questions, you, you want answers. You, maybe you just wandered in here today, this is your first time, and you're like, okay, well, what's this guy talking about? But you're, you're here because you're curious. You're not going to gain anything from the culture. You're not going to get in good graces with your boss. You're not going to get a promotion by being a Christian in today's society. More than likely, it's going to be the exact opposite of that. Here's the other good news, is that from my experience in student ministry, young people more than ever before are open to having spiritual conversations. And here's why, because they're looking for truth in a world that tells them that truth doesn't exist. They're looking for something real in a world that seems like there's nothing that's real. So if you have an answer to their problem, they're going to be willing to listen. And here's the other good news. The fact that we can look at our generation coming up today and seeing that they're lost is nothing new to us, and it's nothing new to the Scriptures. We've seen it happen before, and that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, the Bible actually tells us how generational and cultural lostness can happen and tells us how to quit complaining, which can be really easy to do. We can, we can get on our soapbox about what's happening in our world and go, oh, it's so bad, but then we don't actually do anything about it. But the Scripture tells us how we can actually change things in our world. So that's what I want to do today as we look at Judges chapter 2. Uh, so if you want to follow along in your Bible this morning, we'll also have it on the screen. But what we're going to see this morning is that a lost generation occurs when the previous generation fails to make disciples. A lost generation occurs when the previous generation fails to make disciples. So we're going to start in Judges chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 6 and go through verse 10. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua in all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance at timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So the first, thing, the first thing we should see from this text is that Joshua's generation served the Lord conditionally. Joshua's generation served the Lord conditionally. There's, there's no denying the great things that Joshua... We have a whole book. We have a whole book about Joshua and, and all the works that the, the Israelites did under his command. From coming through to, to Jericho, to wiping out Jericho, to wiping out all the other different places as they conquered the promised land. 
However, they made one crucial mistake that set up the next generation for failure. If you, if you have your Bibles open back at Joshua chapter 2, if we look at verses 1 through 3, we'll see this mistake. It says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. They serve the Lord conditionally. They made this big mistake that maybe for that first generation, they were like, yeah, they're over there. They're, yeah, they're, these people, they're worshiping these false gods. They have these things, but it's okay. We can, we can make it happen. We can manage this. But the next generation came, and it became a problem for their children. It became a problem for their children, and it became a big enough problem to where the whole book of Judges is about this cycle of them running back to idolatry with these false gods. These covenants became a source of compromise. These covenants became a source of compromise in their lives. And like I said, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get into the reasons for why the next generation failed here in a second. But they compromised. Not only did they compromise when they each went their, to their own inheritance, they got comfortable. So they compromised and they got comfortable. Imagine this, you have, a, you have a whole generation of soldiers who served their families, who had to rely on God at every single step of the way. Imagine, we, I, the last time I preached, I got to talk about Jericho, but imagine this generation standing before the walls of Jericho, not knowing what's going to happen, and they trust God. And they walk around and they walk around and they walk around and they trust God because they knew that just by their own physical strength, they couldn't do this. They trusted him. This is that generation. And then they each get to go back home. They get to go back to their inheritance. And they get comfy. There's no longer the daily need to trust God because they have their land that they have earned. They have everything before them. Now it's just about the daily grind. But relying on God becomes something in the back of their minds. And they start building their own kingdom instead of building God's kingdom. They compromised they got comfortable, and then they lacked personal commitment. They lacked personal commitment. What does it say here? It says that the people served the Lord when? All the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders. Why was their service to God limited by their leader? 
Why is it that when Joshua passed away, why was it that when these other leaders passed away that now all of a sudden their commitment waned? They relied on Joshua and the elders' leadership, but their faithfulness changed when they passed away. And what happens? Going back to verse 10. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. This compromise, this lack of commitment, this getting comfortable, what it caused was a whole generation to not know who God was. It was the direct result. So how... This is, this, is where, this is where the breakdown in the logic happens. If, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, as God had given the Israelites the, his very word, and he tells them in Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is the word of the Lord, teach it to your children. Day and night, when you wake up, when you lie down, when you go out, when you come back, write it on your doorposts. Wear it on, like, wherever you go, talk about... Speak to one another about the Word of God. Not only that, but when they cross the Jordan River to go to Jericho, do you remember what happens before they continue their journey? God tells them to stop, keep the ark in the middle of the river, and send 12 men back to grab stones and build a monument so that you can remember what the Lord had done. So if they had monuments and they had history and they had the word of God and they were supposed to be teaching and sharing this with their children, then why did a generation come up that did not know God or the works that he had done? Now, there's the personal responsibility. Those people could have gone, hey, why is that here? And they could have discovered on their own. They could have wandered across the word of God. They could have come into a temple at some point and they could have maybe heard the word of God on their own, but, but the actions of the generations before them made it harder for them to hear and know who God is. That's because Joshua's generation, as great as they were, they failed to disciple their children. They failed to disciple their children. See, you can inherit land, but you can't inherit faith. If they would have done, as Deuteronomy 6 said, if they would have diligently taught them the word of God to their children, they would have known at least who God was. The family was God's first line of discipleship. Two parents knowing and loving God, training up their children to know and love God. That's God's plan that he's given to us from the very beginning. We also see that Joshua's generation failed to mentor new leaders. Did Joshua just come out of nowhere as a leader? No, he spent years walking alongside Moses in the desert. Moses invited him in to his life and into his conversations with God. 
And whenever Moses, it was time for Moses to pass away and, and Joshua to take the lead, Joshua was ready because of the time that Moses had spent with him and the time that God had spent preparing him. But at, who, was, who was Joshua preparing? Who was the next leader that was supposed to take over? So not only were they not discipling their children, but also they weren't mentoring the next generation of leaders. And because of that, whenever Joshua and the elders pass away, there's no leader to help lead the people. So, what do we do about this? That's the big question, right? We have to remember that our number one job as followers of Jesus is to make disciples. As Jesus is ascending into heaven, his last words to his disciples on earth at that time were, go and make disciples. And that's still our job today, our number one job. We are alive on this earth for the sole purpose of passing on our faith to the next generation. Now, we get to enjoy life as we do that, but that is our purpose. That's why we're here. That's why I'm here. I'm not here to make a bunch of money. I'm not here to become famous. I'm not here to gain anything. My only responsibility here, my purpose for being alive today is to make disciples. There's nothing more important than loving God and serving Him by teaching our families first, and then our church family, and then our community how to love and serve God. There's nothing more important that we could do. There's no legacy that we could leave that's greater than that. So, mom and dad, are you discipling your children? Because it starts with us, parents. Are we training them up in God's word? Are, are we teaching them that there's no greater desire that we have for them than to know God and love him and serve him? Are we teaching them that? Are we instilling that in their heart? Or, or by accident, are we somehow teaching them that there's something greater out there? Have we somehow replaced loving God and serving God with Achieving your dreams. Being successful. Being the next sports star. Making the best grades. Getting into this school or that school. Parents, whatever we celebrate... Whatever we celebrate, whatever we tell other people about or brag about on social media, those are the things that our kids see as the ultimate thing in their life. Discipling also doesn't end when someone turns 18. The Bible never says, disciple your children and tell them about God, but when they turn 18, then, you know, they're adults now, so you can just, hands off, they're good. Yes, that relationship changes, yes, they're adults, yes, they have to make their own decisions, but that never takes away your responsibility as their parent to teach them how to love God and to serve God. 
As a church, we also need to understand that a growing number of young believers did not grow up with believing parents. Right now, about 35 to 40% of our student ministry, I would consider spiritual orphans, meaning that they, they come from unbelieving homes. So we need to know as a church that it's our responsibility then to step up and become spiritual mothers and fathers to this next generation that had no spiritual influence in their lives and still doesn't today. We don't, when do we do this? This is the other question I have a lot. So, uh, especially for students, on the student end, because a lot of students are like, well, how do I make disciples? When do I start? Is it like after college? Do I get involved or, or do I start my family first? When do we start? We start yesterday. If you're a follower of Christ, it's your responsibility to make disciples, whether you're eight years old or 108 years old or anywhere in between. It doesn't matter. And this should be really easy for us to understand because all throughout our lives growing up, there was somebody investing in you. Right now, right where you're sitting, you can, if you, I don't want you to close your eyes because you're probably already almost asleep, but I don't want you to, I, I want you just to kind of think for a second, who was the person that invested in your life? Who was the person that shared the gospel with you? Who was that VBS teacher that for no other reason, they weren't getting paid, they were just there for the summer, and they decided to share the gospel with you that day? Or that small group leader, or that neighbor, or that friend that invited you to church when you were not the church-going type. There was somebody that decided one day that they were going to invest in you because that was their God-given responsibility. And now it's time for us to do the same, take on that same responsibility. So here's some practical ways that you can do this. Invite a teenager, a college student, or a young mom out for coffee or ice cream. Take a young family out to eat after lunch. Invite your neighbors over to your house for, for a meal or, or game night. Organize a get-together for your neighborhood. It doesn't even have to be that crazy or organized. Just, just invite people into your everyday life. Maybe there's a young man that you've connected with. and Invite him to come with you to the car dealership for an oil change. Take him with you on that next trip to Home Depot. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be a crazy thing, but it's you inviting people into your life. Especially the young generation. Young people are, are, are looking for family. They don't know what they're looking for, but they're looking for family. They're looking for people that will care about them and love them because they've never experienced that before. That's why they don't know how to ask for it. You're never going to get a young person going, hey, can I hang out with you and you like care about me? Because they don't know how to ask for it because they've never experienced it before, but that's what they need. They need Christian parents, Christian influencers in their lives to say, Hey, come along with me. I will show you how to live. So, how did 
What was, what was the main thing that caused this generation to go astray? Let's keep reading in Judges chapter 2. We're at verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among, from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Like I said earlier, that when we, when we opened up with verses 1 through 3, we saw how not getting rid of the idols then becomes the biggest hindrance, the biggest stumbling block for these people. And the book of Judges basically is a circle. God would bring these people back to him, and then over time they would drift, they would get caught up in the idols of the day, they would start serving and worshiping these other gods, and then all of a sudden they would drift far away from God and God would have to bring them back to him. This was the cycle. It would happen over and over and over again. You would think God would have something to say about these idols, wouldn't you? Well, what about Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments? The first two commandments is the first one, of course, have no other God but God alone. And the second one is don't create any idols. God knew that this would be the stumbling block that would cause them to drift away. And so he addressed it from the very beginning. And that's why he also reminds them to take out all the idols in the promised land because he knows that it will be the stumbling block for them. So what are the idols that we face today? Because the last time I checked, we're not erecting statues in our backyard. Uh, we're not doing elaborate sacrifices or cultic practices, uh, at least not in my backyard, hopefully, uh, unless the neighbor's got a key, I don't know. Uh, but what are the idols today? What are the idols that we have today? In the book Counterfeit Gods by the late Tim Keller, he has a quote that maybe helps us understand what these idols may be in our life. He says an idol is anything that's more important to you than God. And you may be sitting there going like, well, nothing is more important in my life than God. But we prove that by our actions. So what is the thing? Is there anything in your life that you prioritize over God? If God is the most important, then anything that he says that we should do or anything that is about him should take priority in our life above all else. Or have we let other things that are good things become ultimate things, which then makes them bad things? We have to check ourselves. He goes on saying, it's anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Man, if we could get just as excited about God and our worship of him as we do when a touchdown is scored by our favorite team, I'm telling you. Or when we land that big fish. Or when we have that get-together where all of our friends are there and it's the perfect setup for us and it's, it's something for us, that social gathering that brings us joy. If we could just get that excited about God and who He is, 
Lastly, he says, it's anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. Is there anything in your life that you try to find your joy in or your identity in that should only be found in God? That can become an idol to us. See, here, here's, the, here's the main line right here. When we replace God with these false idols, what we're really showing is how little we love and trust God. So when are we going to start destroying the idols in this world for the next generation? When are we going to start speaking against the things that are stealing the hearts of our children? When are we going to just stop accepting them because it's just part of the world, it's just part of how things are now? If, if we want things in life, this is just what you got to do. These are the compromises you have to make. When are we going to stop doing that and say, no, my children having a heart and a love for God and service of Him is more important than any of those things in this world? When are we going to start fighting for the souls of our children? See, we get, we get the consequences of what happens to the Israelites. Verse 14 says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. That's what plunderers would do, I guess. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. They were oppressed from the outside and they were distressed from the inside. Does that sound familiar? And in other words, it's chaos. We have to first answer, why, why would God do this? Why would God do this? Could it be that God loves his people so much that he won't bless their rebellion? Because if he did, then people would never turn back to him. People would never come to know him. People would never come to know the knowledge of what it means to have eternal life. We also have to realize that the chaos in our world is not the problem, it's the symptom. See, sometimes it's so easy to look at the chaos in our world and go, that's the problem. That's the problem right there. It's that thing at Target. It's that thing on the news. That's the problem. And those terrible things are symptoms of the problem, which are the hearts of people. The sinfulness and the brokenness of our world. This generation that's growing up right now is the most depressed, most confused, and most volatile generation to ever live.
They need hope. They need hope. They need truth. And they're not going to find it in an athletic scholarship, or they're not going to find it at their dream school, or a promising career, or a trust fund, or in their future kids. They're not going to find it in being good citizens one day, or doing all the right moral things because that's what you're supposed to do. What they're going to find it in, there's only one answer for sin and brokenness, and that's Jesus. And how are they going to know about Jesus unless we tell them? How are they going to know, us, know about Jesus unless we teach them how to walk with him? How, how are they going to know that this life is better unless we show them how good this life is? I'll, I'll end with this. There's, there's a movie franchise that beautifully captures the idea of investing in the next generation. It's a, it's a famous movie, maybe you've seen it. Uh, dads, you've probably heard it if you, in the back seat if you haven't seen it before, but the movie Cars. In the movie Cars, we meet a race car named Lightning McQueen who's really fast and really arrogant. On his way to the final race of the season, he gets lost and in trouble in a town in the middle of nowhere. And it's here that he meets another car named Doc Hudson, who used to be a famous race car called the Hudson Hornet. But since a big crash, he's now been hiding away from the public eye. After earning some trust, Doc finally teaches Lightning some important racing lessons, but he teaches him some more important life lessons. And at his la and the last race, Doc shows up, and he's his crew chief, and he's cheering them on, and he's teaching them what he needs to do as he's making that final race. Well, the, the, car, the, the voice behind the car, Doc Hudson, passes away, and the car goes away from the series. But by the third series, the third movie in the series, Lightning is, is facing a dilemma himself where he's starting to get phased out. His generation of cars is no longer involved in racing. There's a, there's a whole new line that's going much faster than he ever raced. And as he's fading away, he realizes that this is his opportunity to pass on to the next car. Cruise. But he not, he not only gives her the opportunity to race, but he stays in her, in her corner. He becomes her crew chief, and he teaches her how to race and finish and win, just like Doc did for him. This is Christian discipleship. One generation investing in the next, walking alongside them, cheering them on along the way, always being in their corner willing to help, and at the end of the day, just teaching them how to run the race. Run the way, race. So here's the final question for us this morning. How will you be a part of changing a lost generation into a saved generation?